Ave listeners, Matt Smith here, your friendly podcast host. As we work our way up to episode C, Rhiannon and I thought, hey, it's been a while since we did a Q&A episode. So if you've got any cues related to ancient Rome that you would like aid, then it's time to get in touch. I'll pin a post on Facebook, so feel free to put it there. You can tweet me, I'm at NightlightGuy, and you can also send an email to the podcast, it's emperorspodcast at gmail.com. And also, it'd be great if you could actually record your question and email that to us. If you do that, be aware that we could use your recording, and it may be slightly edited in the process. So that's emperorspodcast at gmail.com. So get your questions in for the Q&A, and I'll see you on the other side. Thanks. Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a Roman history podcast from La Trobe University. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Dr. Rhiannon Evans, Senior Lecturer in Classics and Ancient History at La Trobe University. This is episode XCV, the first triumvirate, which I know, technically, is not a triumvirate. Thank you, Rhiannon. The Roman Republic is now at a point where it can be easily manipulated. In particular, if powerful people decide to come together to further their interests, which is exactly what Caesar, Pompey and Crassus have in mind. Here's Rhiannon Evans. The first triumvirate is formed in 60 BC and it's an alliance between the three most powerful men in Rome at the time. That is Caesar, Pompey and Crassus. And we call it the first triumvirate. We really shouldn't call it that. It's a total modern made-up name because a little bit later, there is a triumvirate that we call the second triumvirate Mm. that really was the first triumvirate. It's a pact between these three people. It has no formal context. It has nothing to do with anything written down and signed and sealed. But they decide that they will support each other to their own ends. So basically, they're kind of going around the Senate. You know, if you work for an organization and there's a group there that makes life hard for you, then you just kind of try and work around them and not let them know what you're doing. Mm. This is what these guys are doing. Caesar, Pompey and Crassus have decided to ignore the magistrates and the Senate and basically act extra constitutionally. This is something that's extra constitutional. It has no place in the Republican constitution. So it's absolutely an important step in the fall of the Republic. All right. So for context, though, I will name this podcast episode The First Triumvirate. So I'll allow that. thank you for saying that my podcast <laughs> title is invalid. Can you give me some context on how these three men knew each other and how they managed to have a voting block? Because none of them have the veto when they decide to make this triumvirate. None of them have that sort of power. So is it that they've got the alliances of other senators who would want to stay on their side? So therefore, you've got a big voting block and you can manipulate the Senate that way? How did they think that this would work? Well, they don't particularly need a huge amount of votes in the Senate. The Senate doesn't get to vote. Yeah. Remember, it's the people who get to vote and to vote in magistrates in particular, although it's true that the Senate being of the property elite, their votes are worth more. How do they know each other? The Roman elite's very, very small. Yeah. And these are the men who've had the most success recently and in Crassus's case have the most money. He's absolutely the wealthiest man in the world. But remember, he had had a lot of military success in the 70s, Pompey more so in the 60s. It's going to come up for Caesar in the 50s in Gaul, but he's already celebrated huge military success too. Caesar's still fairly penniless compared to the others, but Crassus is going to help with that. So it's more about ways they can help each other with their influence. They also have the backing of armies, 
that kind of gives them authority and the ability to threaten people, yeah. even without necessarily doing it in so many words. Uh, and they do have support within the Senate, each of them individually. And together, that's enough to, for example, get Caesar voted in as consul in 59, which means they've got power now. They mm. can get power through Caesar. Caesar can help get land for Pompey's veterans. That's one of the reasons he will support Caesar being consul. So even though on the face of it, and as will transpire in the end, they don't really get on politically. They don't really have the same kind of republic in mind. They won't really get their power from the same groups of people. Caesar always seems to get his power primarily from the people. He's a popularist through and through or accused of being one. Whereas Pompey will drift towards the, the optimates. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I guess you would put Crassus there in some ways too. But as we've discussed before, these are not absolutist political parties mm. and, and Pompey, when it suits him, will try and appeal to the people too. Nevertheless, they can do things for each other at that point. So they're a good alliance. They can see advantages to having the other person on board. They can get what they want by supporting the political ambitions of the others. We've discussed Pompey and Crassus in the previous episode. So let's introduce Julius Caesar at this point in the context of who is he coming into the first triumvirate? And I'm still going to call it that. But who is he at this point? Well, he's a what, 39, 40-year-old man who has had quite a lot of military success from his very young days. He's come from the West, from Spain now, and he thinks he deserves a triumph. But I think we may have discussed at some point in the past how hard it is to get a triumph. You have to appeal to the Senate and mm. then they have to decide whether it's going to happen. And you're not allowed to enter the city until that happens. And Caesar kind of makes this appeal for a triumph. And the Senate says, oh, you know, we'll sit around and consider it. You give us all your data. And Caesar says, but I want to put up my hand to be consul next year. I want to put my name on the rolls as a candidate. And they say, well, you have to be in the city for that. So so he's, he's essentially made to choose between the two of them. Yeah. And he asks to be put forward for consul in absentia. And Cato essentially filibusters yeah. to make sure this doesn't happen. Cato hates Caesar, even at this point, and it's only going to get worse. Yeah. Uh, Cato is kind of the ultimate anti-popularis, and he will not give way to Caesar at all. So Caesar has to decide, does he want eternal glory from the triumph, or does he want temporal power, political power now? Caesar is very practical. He decides he'll go for power. Mm. So he enters the city, gives up the triumph, puts his name down to be consul, gets voted in as one of the consuls for 59. All right. So he cut his losses. He decided he wanted to be consul more than he wanted the triumph. Mm. He can get a triumph at any point he after will any get war. a triumph. Yeah. Don't worry about Caesar. Okay. So he comes into the city and, and wants to put forward for consul, but he makes a very valuable friendship with Pompey, which will help him out with this. Yeah, it's at this point that they decide that they can help each other in this way, that obviously Caesar is offering concessions or maybe more. We can call it bribes. He says to Pompey, you support me. I'll help you out with your, your mm. veteran soldiers. And also... Pompey has promised things <laughs> that he probably shouldn't have done to people that he's been involved with out east that he's made pacts with and he's promised them land power. Yeah, and he's and having trouble getting those through. He can't get them through the Senate, so Caesar says, I'll take care of that for you. A new consul can be very helpful for yeah. fulfilling these promises. Exactly. Yeah. And, of course, then they also have Crassus in the mix 
Now, we aren't given a reason why Crassus enters this. No, well, I, I wonder whether Crassus isn't starting to feel like his power is dropping behind Pompey's because Pompey has had so much success in the 60s. Mm. So maybe he's just trying to get in on the, the latest cool gig at the school. He can have influence through his money, of course. You need money to be voted in consul. Crassus can help out there. It's really to keep his influence at the heart of Rome that he's feeling pushed out elsewhere, I think must be the reason. A contemporary writer, Varro, wrote a book called The Tricaranus, which means the three-headed monster about this pact. So he regarded it as a real dangerous move. And that's a book that we don't have. We don't have it anymore. Probably not even in a monastery somewhere. I'm giving Sorry, up about there's that. There's so much Varro and it's all gone. <laughs> Almost. We, we do have his book on crop rotations. Yeah, we've got the agriculture <laughs> book, which is more interesting than you might say, okay. might think. Plutarch in his Life of Caesar, chapter 13 from subchapter 3, tells us as soon as Caesar entered the city, he assumed a policy which deceived almost everyone except Cato. This policy was to reconcile Pompey and Crassus, the most influential men in the city. These men Caesar brought together in friendship after their quarrel, and by concentrating their united strength upon himself, succeeded before men were aware of it, and by an act which could be called one of kindness, in changing the form of government. (laughs) That's very blasé about it all, but... I think the technical term is smushing together a couple of decades of change there. But basically, Plutarch, from the very handy perspective of the future, is seeing this as crucial and... Caesar as having hoodwinked Pompey and Crassus, that they think they've got equal power, Mm. but actually he's going to use them as a stepping stone to sole power. And that Cato wasn't fooled. And I like how it describes uh, Pompey and Crassus's relationship as a quarrel. But, you know, Caesar's great strength is that he can find the right people and put them in the right place at the right time. So Caesar becomes consul. Caesar is consul of 59. Yeah. And this, as we'll see, puts him in a good position to choose a kind of launch point for a war that he can carry out as a proconsul after his consulship. Mm -hmm. It also means that he can do what he wants during that year. And he kind of does. There are two consuls each year. The other consul is called Bibulus, which means drinking person. Yeah, yeah. The alcoholic. (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't have to be alcohol. Yes. Um, I don't believe that there weren't jokes made about that. Yeah, sure. Uh, But perhaps the greatest joke made about Bibulus is that people call the year of 59 BC not the the year of the consulship of Caesar and Bibulus, but the year of the consulship of Julius and Caesar. So it shows how irrelevant that he he ended up being to it. He was terrorized into just staying at home and not coming to vote sometimes or not coming to carry out his duties as consul. Oh, wait. Sorry. This, this, This is good. Suetonius, Life of Caesar 20, sundry witty fellows, pretending by way sundry witty fellows, pretending by way of jest to sign and seal testamentary documents, wrote, done in the consulship of Julius and Caesar instead of Bibulus and Caesar, writing down the same man twice by name and surname. Presently, too, the following verses were on everyone's lips. In Caesar's year, not Bibulus, 
an act took place of late, for naught do I remember dud in Bibulus's consulate. Oh, nice rhyme at the end. Ah, oh, isn't that great? Yeah. It's a way that Suetonius would have liked it. <laughs> <laughs> Bibulus is very much on the senatorial side as well. Cato's man. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, they have their supporters throughout mm. the ranks of Roman society and they voted for Bibulus. So the chances are, as, as often with the consulship, you'll get consuls mm. from opposing views, but they're meant to balance each other out. But they can only balance each other out if they can both appear in public. Yes. And yep. Bibulus apparently can't. The year is made initially very difficult by the fact that Bibulus refuses to let any of these policies that Caesar and Pompey need passed. So these directives about kings and allies in the east or indeed land distribution for Pompey's veterans, Bibulus just vetoes it. There's no compromise going on here. It's become ideological, this idea. Anything Caesar puts up, I'm just going to say no to. Yes, yes. Plutarch tells us that uh, Bibulus was essentially pelted with feces in public, which is a bit of a bad review from the crowd. Yes, they throw presumably animal dung at him. And it's violent too. Uh, he also says the crowd fell upon his lictors and broke their fasces. His lictors are people who are meant to protect him as consul. Okay. And so if you if you see images of processions of important ancient people, there's em- always an entourage. Yeah. yeah, and the the lictors are the people carrying. They look like a big bundle of firewood, mm. but with axes sticking out, and the the firewood bit, the sticks, are the fasces which are meant to represent the lictor's ability to beat up people who threatened the consul. But instead, it's happening the other way around. The crowd is attacking them and breaking up the fasces, which are kind of their symbols of authority. Mm, mm. What you end up as a result here is uh, Bibulus goes into hiding and essentially withdraws from being consul. Mm. What does Caesar do during this year? He helps out Pompey, doesn't he? Absolutely. And he makes that alliance even stronger with Pompey, by having Pompey marry his own daughter, his only legal offspring, Julia. Because Bibulus is confined to the household, Caesar can just veto anything he doesn't want to happen in the Senate, Mm. while not giving Bibulus the chance to veto anything that he and Pompey don't want passed. So already we've got signs here of uh, what we would think of as dictatorship, that one man is in charge at least for that year. And you can imagine how much resentment that builds up. So it's really valuable to have the people on your side then because it's the people who have done this to Bibulus, but it's Caesar who has the power over these people. Yeah, and, and presumably through proxies like tribunes, he's he's always got at least one of the tribunes on his side. Mm. And in this case, you know, he, ha- he has Clodius on side, who's a tribune, who will kind of prosecute this for him and presumably can get people to whip the people up to act on Caesar's behalf. So you don't have to do it directly. Yeah. But uh, it helps that Caesar is always popular with the people. And then, of course, he has tried to carry out uh, certain acts which will help the people. It's not just propaganda. It's not just that he looks good. He is interested in land redistribution. He's also interested in further empowering the peoples of Italy. Mm. Uh, So we talked about the social war where they they got limited form of Roman citizenship. Caesar wants to extend that. He wants the very north of Italy to be incorporated into Italy, Cisalpine Gaul. So he does have policies that might appeal to them, that, that might indeed endear him to them. So meanwhile, as discussed in the previous episode of Emperors of Rome, Cicero is exiled. He's exiled in 58. And then comes back. And Julius Caesar finishes his consulship 
and heads north. He does. He goes northwest off to what we think of as Gaul. Proconsul of the area and starts a massive war, which was completely justified in his eyes. Yes. <laughs> he's, he's meant to be proconsul or governor of what we think of as northern Italy and very southern France, Provence. Yep which is the original Roman province and a little bit of Croatia called Illyria. But he finds reason very quickly for going beyond that and for getting involved in a dispute between local Gallic peoples and people who are on the move and saying the province is in danger and becomes quickly embroiled in a war in Gaul, Mm. which he almost certainly wanted to happen. That was the point of being governor of the province was a springboard to having this war in Gaul, which meant he could conquer Yes. He could conquer more land, create provinces and get his triumph and his glory and a lot of money gets an awful lot of spoils out of this and a lot of glory back in Rome. He's always getting kind of, you know, the Senate acclaiming him year after year because mm. he's there for the best part of a decade. So while he is up there, how does he maintain the triumvirate then? You've got Pompey and Crassus back in Rome, living it up, making the most of Caesar's absence probably. Yes. It's in their interest to keep their alliance with Caesar while he is, you know, garnering so much glory, I suppose. It's in Caesar's interest as well to keep these two on side. It's particularly in his interest because he's not there. So he needs proxies back in Rome. And he has Clodius, at least some of the time. But of course, he doesn't want Pompey and Crassus to be offside with him. Mm. So the initial alliance seems to have been made for a certain period, or certainly by 56, they see a need to renew it. So Caesar comes back to um, northern Italy to a place called Lucca, beautiful medieval town now. And they have a conference at Lucca where they basically renew the alliance. They renew the triumvirate. And whereas Caesar was supported for consul in in 59, uh, they agree that now they will support each other so that Pompey and Crassus can be consul together. Mm. They'll ensure this happens by getting soldiers into Rome who will vote for them. Starting to look very, very dangerously like military dictatorship if yeah. they hadn't already got there because these are all warlords. And then, of course, like Caesar, after they've been consul that year, they will get proconsulships, governorships of important provinces so that they can then further build their power. So this is all about garnering more power for one another. Mm. Even at this point, it must be pretty clear that... You know, the moment of the individual is coming through. How long is this going to last? These three really tough power brokers, how long is it going to be before one of them decides they want to be in total control on their own? So most of the ancient sources that we've got talk about this, uh, except for Dio Cassius, for whatever reason. But is this something that Caesar talked about himself in his Gallic War writings? Absolutely not. In a way, it's not surprising because he doesn't talk about events back at Rome much at all. So, you know, I'm not sure he ever mentions Pompey in the whole of the Gallic Wars. It's very much about what goes on in Gaul. Each book is a year of the war. And when the war for that year is over, he just says, I went back to carry out the assizes to do the law courts. And that's the end. Mm. And then you're in the next year of conflict. And the most that Crassus is mentioned is, uh, oh, and Crassus's son is with me. Yeah. 
Exactly. So there is a reason for that. So it's not part of the focus. And I think there's probably good reason for that in that this is his book of, um, some would read it as propaganda about stuff I did in Gaul, Mm. people I conquered. (laughs) What I did on my Gaulish holiday. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He doesn't want to invoke Roman politics and the machinations going on there. And in a way, as I say, even though it's an open secret, technically this alliance doesn't exist. Mm. It's not like alliances have never existed in the Roman Republic. The families have built alliances, particularly on marriage in the past. But this seems particularly like a little cabal of people putting each other's interests forward in a way that hasn't happened in the past. So very soon after this, the triumvirate outlives its usefulness. I think that what essentially happens from my interpretation of it is that egos become too big for it to be useful to anyone. Yeah, look, there's a series of unfortunate events from 54 BCE. And the first one is that Caesar's daughter, Julia, dies. She dies in childbirth. So we no longer have that connection, that marriage connection, family tie between Pompey and Caesar. And that would have been her first child. So there's no grandchild either. This means that she performed that work of the glue of holding them together is not there anymore. Mm. And that doesn't mean that the alliance wouldn't have continued if there had been a purpose for it. But the fact that the family connection's gone and the purpose for the alliance is starting to weaken as well, because it's clear that Caesar and Pompey are both getting their power from their armies and that they could potentially do it on their own. So they don't need the other person there anymore. They don't have to meet up for family gatherings anymore. That's kind of over between them just a couple of years after they've renewed the alliance. Plus the following year, Crassus is killed on campaign out in Parthia, Mm. where he has gone after being consul and he has been decimated at the Battle of Carai. This is a huge disaster for the Romans. They lose standards This is sort of a point of dishonor that's held over them for decades after this. And it's not resolved, certainly not resolved by the time of the death of Caesar. Does Augustus go and get them? Augustus, well, he negotiates to get the standards back. Did you ask Augustus if he went and got them or if he negotiated? Well... He would say that he went and got them. Didn't he get a triumph out of that? Yeah, I mean, there's a famous statue of Augustus, Augustus the Prima Porta. And he's got on his breastplate there him going and getting them. It's probably Tiberius getting handed back the standards. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So, yeah, this was something he celebrated. Sorry, that was just a massive Emperors of Rome tangent. Yeah, (laughs) good you remembered. Yeah, so this is a, a great disgrace for the Romans. And, of course, it takes away the third member of the triumvirate yes. and the source of money. Yeah. Plutarch quote. <laughs> Plutarch's very cynical about Caesar's motives at this point. He says, and I quote chapter 28 in The Life of Caesar, Caesar had long ago decided to put down Pompey, just as, of course, Pompey had also decided to put Caesar down. For now that Crassus, who was only waiting for the issue of their struggle to engage the victor, had perished amongst the Parthians, it remained for him who would be greatest to put down him who was and for him who was greatest, if he wouldn't... I can't read that sentence. (laughs) It's too many clauses. Yeah, Plutarch needs a good editor. (laughs) Pretty much they both were suspicious of each other. Yeah, and I love the way that Plutarch does the power balance there and the calculations. Even though Crassus has been taken out of the game by being killed, he speculates that if Crassus had stuck around, he was just waiting for Pompey and Caesar and one to knock the other out. And then he'd step in to take on... I mean, it's a good tactic, isn't it? Wear your enemy out and then take the victor. 
if we believe Plutarch, and certainly the outcome would suggest he might be right, each of them is in fact just waiting for their moment to take power. So they were all using each other. So the alliance between these three was very disruptive to the fabric of Roman life, I suppose, of the city at least, or even wider of the empire. So how much civil unrest did it result in? Oh, it's pretty disastrous by the mid and late 50s. There's street gangs. Rome's a very dangerous place to be. Mm. Uh, In 52 BC, I think that might have been the worst year. Nobody wants to be consul. It's very hard to get anybody to stand in. So Pompey is sole consul. It's the first time we've only had one consul. That is also the year that the street gang that's more aligned with Pompey, who's moving towards the Optimates, and the other gang aligned more with the Populares and Caesar, they come together and and, uh, murder Clodius, who is the ex-tribune who's seen as a Popularis. Yeah. Clodius's followers put his body into the Senate house and burn it down as his funeral. You know, the Senate House is burned down. That's how bad things are by the late 50s. Mm. You don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know who's going to be killed. There's extreme violence in Rome. If you had any sense, you'd get out at this point, I think. So Caesar looks at this then maybe as an opportunity that he can come in here with his army of 40,000 that have been keeping the peace, quotation fingers slash genocide in Gaul, cross the Rubicon and take over. Well, Caesar, he at least makes a show of attempting to negotiate with the Senate because the problem back home is that Cato wants to prosecute Caesar for his activities in Gaul, for having engaged somebody who's regarded as a friend of the Roman people in battle, you know, hanging this over Caesar. And Caesar says he wants a magistracy so that he's immune Mm. and Cato won't let that happen. So Caesar can't come back to Rome. He'll lose his immunity as soon as he comes back to Rome and he loses his army and his position as proconsul. So instead of doing that, he just brings his army with him. Yeah. All right. So this is another instance of the Roman constitution apparently stopping something from happening. Rome is meant to be a place of civil life. It's not where you have wars. Mm. And because of the conflict that's going on between individuals, those customs, traditions and laws are being broken. Caesar breaks it by bringing his army into Italy. So when you look at the first triumvirate as another symptom of the fall of the Roman Republic, how do you put it in context? Is it an important thing that happened? Did it hasten it? Is this something that without it, the Republic could have recovered in any way? It's so difficult, isn't it, to write these alternate histories? I suspect that maybe we would have come to the warlord stage eventually anyway, this was just, it might have been a way of hastening that. And look, you could argue that if the first triumvirate, if this pact had worked, if it had really kept the peace in Rome, if you're not as suspicious as Plutarch, mm. then maybe it would have kept the balance of power. It's just the balance of, in a very, very small group as opposed to dispersed amongst the whole Senate. Given what we know, it's very hard to see Caesar not wanting to seize power. Yeah. Some would say that he's really forced into it by the optimates who won't let him do anything he wants. All right, they'll just block him. I kind of see that the further corruption of what a console is and how a console is made and the powers that they have is maybe a big thing to come out of the first triumvirate. So you've got Bibulus essentially being made irrelevant and Caesar ruling by himself in practice. Mm. And then you've got Pompey and Crassus being made consul when they're 
very much voting as a block anyway, you further lose the relevance that you were already starting to lose when Marius just said console, 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 console for six years in a row. Yeah, but in the case of Marius, at least it was in a time of crisis when he was warding off the Gauls from the north. But here it does look like people are much more interested in individual power stroke dictatorship. In some ways, it seems like Caesar is at least, you know, his policies are quite attractive to us from a modern perspective. And it's tempting to see him doing the wrong thing for the right reason. But of course, it does lead to a devastating civil war. Mm -hmm. I mean, crossing the Rubicon draws once again these terrible rifts in the Roman Republic and people have to choose sides and innocent people will be killed. So, you know, quite apart from all the violence that's carried out by the creation of empire, now the Romans are carrying it out on themselves. That's Dr. Rhiannon Evans, Senior Lecturer in Classics and Ancient History at La Trobe University, and you have been listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your local friendly neighbourhood podcatching service. Reviews, as always, are very appreciated. You can like The Emperors of Rome on Facebook and you can follow myself and Rhiannon on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans and I am at Nightlight Guy. In the next episode of Emperors of Rome, Caesar becomes dictator for life, however long that may be, and the Republic as we know falls. So on that cheerful note, I'm Matt Smith, you've been sundry witty fellows, and thanks for listening. <laughs>